I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to the 15th episode of IntroVets podcast. Today we have fan favorite Dana Hampson back. Dana is a licensed professional counselor, and she practices as the therapist. She also owns the Balanced Life LLC in Madison, Alabama. Welcome back, Dana. Hey, Lauren and JJ. Thanks Yay. for having me. Yay! Yay. <laughs> the episode that she was on previously is episode four, and the title is Anxiety Castle. If you want to go back and listen to that, I highly recommend it. Thanks. So today we're going to be talking about the lovely thing that is anxiety. Veterinary medicine seems to attract personality types that are prone to high anxiety. That's basically from just, you know, experience. <laughs> it it seems to be overcrowded. The average veterinary employee tends to, you know, seem to be a introverted perfectionist with low self-esteem, which is, of course, perfect recipe for high levels of anxiety. So we're going to give Dana several scenarios that tend to happen in everyday veterinary medicine and see what her solution or advice would be. Yeah. And some of the scenarios that we're going to get into have some legal and ethical implications that we won't fully or completely address. We might allude to them. Anytime uh, a topic kind of crosses the line into a legal or ethical question, uh, we do need to potentially consult an attorney about that and also consult the Practice Act in the state where you live, or if you're international, the laws that govern veterinary practice where you live. So we are not using today's podcast as a platform to provide legal advice. This is simply therapy advice, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> this probably rules against that, too. <laughs> yes, we're calling it What Would Dana Do? What Would Dana Do? <laughs> How would Dana advise the person that's in this scenario? Okay. All right, JJ, do you want to take us away with the first story? Today is not Amy's day. She's made a few small mistakes, nothing really huge, but to her, they're, they feel very big. She's maybe misjudged a couple of situations and overall just feels like kind of a flat tire on a well-oiled machine. She's apologized to her coworkers multiple times but still feels quite inadequate. Um, she feels like the entire clinic hates her and thinks she's incompetent. She is really wondering how she could possibly make amends and get some reassurance that she's not going to get fired today. Ah, great. All right. So I want to start with saying, first of all, that anytime you give answers to scenarios, there's always more details that if it was a real situation, you would have to take into consideration, right? But I think it's also important to consider that, you know, if I were working with Amy, I wouldn't have two or three sentences that are going to help her fix the problem. But I think mm -hmm. looking at it um, from a case scenario standpoint and thinking about what are the what seems to be the what seems to be the big issue here can be what I can and will address today. So what I would say about Amy is, first of all, you can see that she's got what I would call thinking errors in even the way she's conceptualizing what's happened. So feeling like everybody hates me right off the bat is an error in her thinking because she doesn't know that everyone hates her and the odds that everyone does hate her is, is pretty low. 
um, or that even hates her at all because she's made mistakes. So if I'm working in a place where people legitimately hate me, I probably shouldn't work there, right? <laughs> um, and that they think she's incompetent because she made mistakes. Also, not the kind of place I'd want to work is that if I, there's no room for error, if everyone else I work with is entirely perfect, I'm probably not going to fit in there very well and probably should look somewhere where there's some room for growth and learning and mistake making. So mm -hmm. I would challenge her if she came in and talked to me about that with those particular errors. But this is one that I, I particularly liked because this is something I talk to clients about a lot is that the happiest people seem to be the ones who do a good job balancing self-compassion and personal responsibility. So what I would talk to Amy about here is that she's done a good job taking personal responsibility. Now, she's taken it a little far with multiple apologies. Once you make a mistake, you own it, you make amends, you do what you got to do to fix it, and you move on. You don't, multiple apologies just end up being extra words. They're not, there's no, there's no quantity points you get for, apologizing a million times. So um, trying to help her be kind to herself, that we all make mistakes, that we all have to learn. We learn through mistakes and that she's done what she can to remedy mistakes um, is balancing that self-compassion and the personal responsibility. So, you know, long-term work with somebody who experiences this a lot where they just beat themselves up for every error that they make and they don't give themselves any grace for making mistakes and learning from them is work that's done a lot in therapy because, you know, a lot of people, even outside veterinary medicine, really struggle with this one, that I there's this error that I shouldn't make mistakes, uh, which is a very in, incorrect rule that a lot of people operate by, and that I don't deserve compassion. And so also challenging that, that of course you do. We're human. We all make mistakes. That's how we learn. So it sounds like in this particular case, this isn't going to be a quick fix sort of a thing. This is something that, um, sorry, was it Amy? Mm -hmm. Yes, Amy. Okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. This is something that Amy is going to need to work on over time, learning to kind of tone it down a little bit on the on the beating herself up so that mm -hmm. she can go on to excel. Yes. Do you have any recommendations for strategies that people might use if, if this is a new concept to them to try to let go of um, that feeling of just, oh, I have totally failed and I need to, you know, just beat myself up? Mm -hmm. Are there any strategies that, that would be easy to implement or for baby steps? Sure. Yeah. So um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a, is a, a treatment modality that I use with a lot of people. And it's very much about te teaching people to be aware of what they're thinking. Uh, so basically catching the error and re reframing it or replacing it with a more accurate thought, not necessarily a more positive thought like I'm the best employee ever, but saying I am a human that makes mistakes and that is perfectly acceptable would be a, a reasonable reframe, right? Rather than this is a disaster and everyone hates me is I made a mistake and I've done what I need to do to remedy it and I am going to focus on the rest of my day. So, you know, someone learning to acknowledge when their thought is, is an error and teaching themselves to replace it with something that actually is more realistic or accurate is a process. So it sounds easy, but it is more of a, a, a process of teaching myself to think about situations differently. So that's why this is not a quick fix, because when people 
um, have a propensity towards uh, lots of self-deprecation and, you know, are really great at beating themselves up. They've had lots of practice. They've gotten really good at that being the automatic thought. If I mess up, it means I'm an epic, horrible human being, epic failure, horrible human being. So um, learning to catch the thought and replace and reframe would be the strategy I would work with her on. In addition to longer term, just teaching herself to be kind to herself, you know, that that adding that self-compassion component. It seems to me she's also sort of like a um, someone who seeks reassurance a lot. Is that another thinking error? Or does that just kind of go along with what you talked about before? Ah, yeah, I see that. That she needs somebody to tell her she's not going to get fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, that's more of a um, external validation kind of thing. So that I need people to tell me I'm doing good rather than knowing that I am doing a good job. And so that's a whole different area that you might work on. But generally, um, there's some really interesting stuff online about self-compassion and people who are are really adept at being compassionate with themselves generally have a pretty um, good self-concept. So they have that internal monologue that's healthy and they can um, validate themselves when they need it. And they can be almost be their own uh, best friend. So they can say, I'm not going to get fired for making a mistake. I've done what I need to do um, at, you know, I've alerted whoever I need to alert. If it's somebody, you know, if people need to know about this, um, I don't need anybody to tell me it's okay because I know it's okay. I feel confident in that, you know, so that's a, that's a whole nother element of therapy sometimes is helping people trust their inner voice because they basically have reprogrammed their inner voice to be their own best friend rather than their worst enemy. Mm. Sometimes I, you know, will have trouble with this sort of thing where I make a mistake and I really just, you know, am having a hard time getting over it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that tends to help me is to, you know, talk with uh, maybe a veterinary colleague that's outside of the situation, someone that is truly impartial I try not to necessarily involve people from the actual practice, although, you know, if you have that type of relationship with someone, that would be good. But I like mm-hmm. to call I like to call my friend Wendy, who is <laughs> also a veterinarian in another town. And I, I like to to say, Wendy, here is the thing that happened. What do you think? And mm-hmm. and sometimes um, even if Wendy doesn't say Oh, you did everything perfect. Um, it's easier to kind of work through it with her. Like, is reaching out for support like that, like a good, like maybe a starter step? Or is that still kind of trying to get that external validation that we should try to kind of steer away from? Well, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think um, sometimes it does take baby steps to get to where you want to in terms of how you handle situations like this. But I, I, I think it's good general practice, especially if I really, I made a pretty big mistake, you know, to be able to get additional education or to talk to somebody about like, I, I messed up and I don't even know what to do to fix it. Or I don't know how I remedy this, or there's not any remedy yet. You know, maybe like in, in, in y'all's case, maybe a pet dies, right? So there's no, there's no fixing that, you know? So what do I do to learn from this? How do I turn this terrible situation into something where at least I feel like I got something positive from it that's going to help me avoid this in the future? So I think from a from that perspective, I mean, I I you know have often in my career 
called someone, a colleague that I trusted and said, hey, what do you think about this? I Or I feel like I fixed it, but something still like there's just this naggy feeling in the back of my head that I'm not sure I did or I'm just I'm really struggling with beating myself up. And so sometimes, you know, even the most confident people still need somebody to say, you know what? I, I'm I'm an outside party. I feel like I'm objective. And I, it sounds like you did the right thing. And that does feel good that someone that wasn't in the thick of it can kind of say, it sounds like you did what you were supposed to do. I, I think we all can benefit from that from time to time. I just don't want that to be my default that I don't, I can't recognize that I did a good job or that I did the right thing or corrected a mistake without somebody checking the box that, that says you did good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so the next situation that we're going to review is a receptionist had just exploded into the treatment area and announced to the room that Mr. Smith is on the phone and he is super mad. The receptionist is at a level 15 out of 10 in the freaking out scale and has in turn set the entire room into a ball of anxiety. Mr. Smith was told he would be able to pick up a prescription today by an employee that's not present today. He was also told incorrect medical information by that same absent employee. The prescription he wants to pick up is a medicine that the hospital does not carry. No one at work today wants to talk to him, and he is left on hold for a long time while various employees claim that they're not it. (laughs) That's a tough one. Yes. So for the employee that ultimately has to pick up this phone call, what can they do to get through it? Okay. So I would start with, hopefully this employee doesn't look at it as something they have to do. So we talked about that in the, in the the first time I was on here is that there's very little that we actually have to do. Um, So if I'm working there, I'm choosing to be there, then I can choose to talk to Mr. Smith. First, I would say if he has read the not nice book, he knows about <laughs> the energy bubble idea. And so in the in the not nice book, um, Dr. Aziz talks about um, the idea of an energy bubble that we visualize around ourselves when someone is exuding lots of negative energy. So uh, lots of uh, either anxiety or um anger or something, fear is it coming emanating from this person and I can see it and I'm aware of it, but I don't absorb it. It doesn't become mine. And that's what's happened. It sounds like with the other people in the room is everybody has absorbed the panic, right? That we, the fear is a we're in danger. We're, so we're in danger because there's a upset person on the phone. No, we're not in danger. There's an upset person on the phone. We have a job to do. So if this person is able to, this employee is able to take a breath and say, okay, so I'm going to choose to go talk to Mr. Smith, can completely understand if he ends up being upset. He is not upset at me. So that would be something I would hope this person would remember is that even if he projects being upset at me, it's not about me. So that helps not take it personally. It keeps it on the outside of the energy bubble. And at the end of the day, all of us just want to be heard. So if this employee can get on the phone and say, hey, Mr. Smith, and of course, I don't know what he if he knows any of this yet, that he's not going to be able to get his employee, his prescription or that he knows he was told incorrect information. So I'm not sure about that. But, you know, once I find out what he knows, being able to empathize if he's angry 
um, or upset or whatever he's feeling because he's justified in having that feeling. Um, and there's lots of other factors. Is he being ugly about it or is he just venting or being upset about it? Or is he willing to go into problem solving mode? But if I can just go into the phone call, interested in what I can do to try to help. So if I can stay calm, I think we talked about this on the other podcast or the last episode that I was on was um, not doing anything to escalate the situation. So if I don't go to the call acting like I'm afraid, if I'm able to be calm, if I'm able to approach him assertively, but with lots and lots of empathy that I absolutely hate that this has happened. I'm not going to say I'm sorry because I didn't do it. So I'm not going to apologize for something that I didn't do, but I can absolutely say, you know what, this is unacceptable. And I completely understand why you're super upset. Um, what is it that I can do to try to help you out? Let's try to problem solve a solution here. Or you tell me what you need. I'm going to go talk to the practice manager, or I'm going to go talk to the, the practice owner, whoever I need to talk to, and I'm going to get back with you and we're going to figure this out. Okay. I'm, I am on your team to get this solved. Um, now it sounds like, honestly, I, and I, y'all are going to be like, right, but this to me should be something that the, the, uh, business office manager or the practice manager should handle. I really think that if there has been incorrect medical information given out, we have crossed into that really is the owner of this practice's problem. But I, I imagine there's people that might pass that off. Um, and so yeah. if I'm going to be the, if I'm the one that is going to go ahead and take this call, because if I can put myself in his shoes, I'd be like, well, shit, I want somebody to talk to me. So <laughs> I am going to go talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to go at this from a, I'm going to help this guy solve this problem to the best of my ability. Um, then the odds are most people, especially if they feel heard and they feel like somebody wants to help them out, are going to de-escalate relatively quickly, right? Um, so if, if I don't feel, if I'm on the other end of this and I'm upset and I don't feel like the person's being snippy with me or patronizing with me or acting like they're afraid of me, all of those things escalate when someone's upset. So if the person meets me with kindness um, and really wants, and I really do feel like they want to help me out, it's amazing how the the air and the sales goes out um, relatively quickly with the vast majority of escalated people I've ever, ever dealt with. And I've mm-hmm. dealt with a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah. <I bet. laughs> well, Dana, I absolutely agree with your point uh, that, you know, if an owner is to the level of anger that it has the entire clinic in an uproar, management needs to step in and handle this. I mean, this is the definition of what management's job is. Mm-hmm. Um, So if I could climb up onto my management soapbox for just a minute, I have several thoughts about this particular scenario. So um, my first thing is that this is this is almost entirely a management issue. So the management needs to handle this person, de-escalate the situation and fix it without any additional information. What it sounds like to me is that the guy just needs to pick up a written prescription like that's no big deal and super easy to fix. Um. If management's not available, the veterinarian that handles the case needs to get on the phone with this person when they're mad. That That's what we need to do. And if that veterinarian's not available, the owner of the clinic needs to to do it. And if none of those people are available, what, what are we doing? 
what what kind of place are we running up in here? Like one of those people should all the time be there. I don't I don't understand. But anyway, um, my other thought is that if the staff fears clients to this degree, it has to be that clients are acting bizarrely and out of line way too often. So it sounds like that the clients at this particular clinic haven't been well trained and that bad behaving clients aren't disciplined or terminated as clients when they need to be. Um, It sounds like there might even be a culture of absenteeism among the management. If this is a constant problem where you're having low level employees needing to deal with people on the phone being very, very belligerent. I mean, that's not what their job is. That's not what they're trained to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see it as a reception issue. Why are we answering the phone? And then if someone's, you know, a little bit off with you, why are we escalating that and then spreading it around the whole clinic? Because that's not helpful. You know, Mm -hmm. like, why are we stirring the pot with it? I think it's always fine to give someone a mild heads up that a client might be grumpy. But like, there's no reason to create this major suspense and drama and everything because that's just going to make the issue worse. And then finally, you know, if it's a medical staff issue, like a prescription, you know, I feel like any trained medical staff member should be able to read this description, get on the phone and say, Mr. Smith, I can completely see why you're upset. It's very unfortunate, but... We don't have the prescription you need to pick up here today. What I can do for you are the following things. I can order it. I can write you a written prescription. I can have you talk to a member of management. Here's when I expect them to be available. Which one of those things would you like for me to do? You know, and and if they can't handle that, then my question is why? Like, are we just lazy? Have they been abused by clients to the point that they just are super done and burned out? Like, no matter what the what the answer is, we got to dig it, it out. And when I was kind of going over this scenario with JJ in our pre-podcast meeting, I was like, <laughs> almost jokingly, but not really, it was like, fire everyone. <laughs> fire the staff that doesn't want to handle the client. Fire the client for being an asshole. <laughs> fire the manager for not handling it when they're supposed to. But that's not realistic. <laughs> But it's fun to think about. (laughs) It is like just everyone in the situation is fired. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, it's funny when you said that about the the way the receptionist handle it. That's what I was thinking, too, is that this is a uh, we would call the thinking air catastrophic thinking um, or um, I call it chicken little syndrome. So it's the sky is falling. The sky Mm -hmm. is falling when really what's happening is an acorn hits you on the head. Right. So it doesn't mean something's not happened. It doesn't mean it's not important. But is it really a catastrophe? Most of the time, it's not. So having staff that can kind of take that in stride and just, like you said, Lauren, be able to come and say, hey, yeah, I think we've dropped the ball on something here, but we're going to need to be able to, you know, I think we could solve it or even just being in, everybody just stays in problem solving mode. You end up heading off a lot of this stuff at the pass before it escalates into, you know, now we've got a crisis on our hands. Yeah. And then- You know, something that took me a really, really, really long time to understand, and I think really in the past six months, I'm finally able to feel comfortable saying it, is it's okay if owners are mad, like pet owners. That's okay. Mm -hmm. They're allowed to be mad. That's still kind of uncomfortable for me to think about. 
<laughs> but like it is okay for them to be mad and it's not my job to fix it. Like it's my job to help them get the pet health care that they need, but I can't manage their emotions for them. But I spent a long time, years and years of my life trying to, but it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it make, gives you that feeling of like, okay, I have messed up somehow because they're angry, even if you had nothing to do with the scenario. That's at least that's where my brain goes. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, you have failed. <laughs> but I never even touched the situation, but I'm the one having to handle it. So therefore, it's my fault somehow. Yeah. Bottom line, Dana would be to focus on calmly fielding the call and de-escalating the situation and then try not to take it personally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds good. So now we're going to talk about Thea. Uh, Thea is a veterinary staff member, and she's brought her pet in to be seen today. Dr. Terry is a relatively new hired veterinarian, and it's a one-doctor day. Uh, Thea's pet has some symptoms that are very concerning to Dr. Terry, and she doesn't know really how Thea is going to handle her recommendations. She doesn't know how far she wants to go in treatment and how much she's willing to spend on her pet. Dr. Terry is prepared to make all the recommendations she normally would, but she's feeling really anxious as to how Thea is going to react and what she might say about Dr. Terry to her colleagues and other staff members. Hmm. This is similar to what you two were just saying, which is assuming responsibility for someone else's feelings. So Mm -hmm. right off the bat, that's not Dr. Terry's problem. That's actually my very first note. So Thea's response to the professional's recommendations is not the professional's responsibility. I feel like it's important for the doctor to say, what is my job? And I do that regardless of the anticipated response. So I also would do that because I wouldn't want somebody else to do that to me. Would I want a doctor to say, ah, I don't think she can handle this cancer diagnosis. So I'm not going to tell her that's what it is because that's just too difficult to bear. And that's extreme. But just because I don't think they're going to want to go through treatment, just because I don't think they're going to want to pay for it, just because they might get mad that I suggest it. They're not getting mad about that. They're mad about all sorts of angers, the Anger's the cover-up feeling for so many other feelings that we just don't like to feel. Fear, disappointment, vulnerability, um, all sorts of anxiety. All of those often are masked under our self-protection of anger. So a patient owner lashes out. A lot of times it's because something else is underneath that. They're sad. They're disappointed. They're worried. You know, but a lot of people don't have enough, I don't know, uh, uh, emotional regulation to be able to just feel what they're actually feeling. So we default to anger. Um, and that's just something I think as as professionals, we all just have to be, we just have to know it comes with the territory. It doesn't change what I'm going to do. So, you know, I might, I'm, I'm going to be empathetic and say, hey, this is a, this is a lot of stuff. How are you feeling about that? You know, and she may say, I don't think I can afford it or how dare you suggest this? And I would say, because it's my job to suggest it and it's your job as the pet owner to decide what you want to do with those recommendations. Um, so this one, and maybe I'm maybe I'm naive since I'm not in veterinary medicine, but I don't I don't cater what I say to clients in therapy because I don't think they can handle it. Now, am I judicious about how I present information? Sure. Um, But at the end of the day, people come to therapy because they want things to be better. And I'm not doing them any services if I 
don't tell them things I think they need to know because I don't think they can handle it. That is not my job to decide for them. So I would say this is a, this is the same thing, that it's not the doctor's job to decide Thea can't handle it. Yep, that sounds sounds about right. <laughs> Dana, I think you're right on. And I, I agree completely, you know, as a veterinarian who's had to go over tough things with lots of employees. The way that I like to start any type of client discussion, whether they're an employee or not, doesn't matter, is to say, especially if it's a tough one, okay, I need to talk to you about some things that are going to be hard to hear. We've got to go over a lot of information. We've got to talk about some options. I'm going to go through what I would do if we had unlimited resources, both financial and emotional. And then we're going to open it up to questions. Before I do that, are there any things you want to share with me about your goals for the case that might change how we would want to proceed? And then as I go through the options, then I check in with the owner about those things, making sure that I understand what they're telling me correctly about their goals, because that really goals, especially in veterinary medicine, where, let's be honest, finances drive so much of what we end up doing for patients, you really have to be on the same page about goals. And I actually think that a lot of the time when owners get upset about recommendations, it's because they don't feel heard on the goals end of things. Or they might be, the owner might be fearful that the veterinarian will judge them uh, as not caring about the pet if they don't accept things. So I go ahead and put that all out. Not everyone would be able to do all the things I'm suggesting. I don't know that I would do all the things I'm suggesting, but it's my job to tell you about all the options and here's what they are. And then, you know, then go from there. But I think you're absolutely right, Dana. You can't you can't mince words when it's important because you don't you can't accurately predict what people are going to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've had people that I thought were going to do everything decide to to euthanize. And I've had people that I thought there's no way we can do anything go to incredible lengths to to save the patient. So it, I think you just have to put it all out there and see see what they want to do. Mm hmm. Now, I think as a, just a veterinary support staff member, I would be very respectful of that. I mean, that would that would be impressive and reassuring to me to know that, you know, all the options are, are presented to me and I feel respected enough to make my decision and that you're you respect me enough to give me all those options so that, you know, I can steer in a, a direction that I feel like I have a a good person that's working with me to help me make the decisions and give me all the options so that I don't feel like I'm pigeonholed into one thing or trying to, well, it's not looking great. So you probably want to just go ahead and euthanize. I'd be like, hey, let me have a a say here. So the podcast, uh, you know, is on social media and Dana's business is one of the podcast's friends, you know, And so when I'm updating the podcast social media, I see posts from Dana's business. And one of the ones from this past week was (laughs) Dana with a sweatshirt on that said, I'm not for everyone. (laughs) It's my favorite. I saw that. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, awesome, because I think this applies in in this situation. Like you, as bad as it feels and as hard as it's been even for me to accept it, like not everyone is going to like my style of being a vet or the recommendations that I have. Like they're not. So I need to concentrate on the clients that do appreciate me for the the things that I believe in with 
you know, practice, which is goals-based medicine and trying to be very, very thorough and go over all the options and be very supportive. And sometimes owners just don't want that. And if they don't want that, that doesn't mean I need to change my approach. It just really means they need to get, get a different vet because <laughs> I'm not for everyone. <laughs> right. And it doesn't mean you failed. Right. It, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It just means you weren't necessarily a good fit. And I was trying to find, so let me see if I can find, uh, so attached to that same post, I had run across a Brene Brown quote that said, um, caution, if you trade in your authenticity for being liked, you may experience the following anxiety depression, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. Um, wow. And so that's a lot of really heavy, not fantastic feelings. I, I always go back to that book, Not Nice, because that's what he talks about, is that trying to be liked by everybody or being nice or needing approval from, ne needing everybody to think what I'm doing is okay leads to not being authentic, because inevitably I'm trying to cater myself to every person that i deal with rather than just doing it the way I feel is the authentic way to do it and accepting that's going to work for a whole lot of people. It won't work for others. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a tough pill for a lot of therapists to swallow is, you know, lots of therapists <laughs> are people pleasers. And so they need everybody to think they're doing a great job. Um, and their validation comes from all their clients liking them. So then you have a client who just ghost you and never comes back. Lots of therapists are like, what? What does this mm. mean? I have 20 that come to see me, but this one that quit means I have done something wrong. I am a failure. <laughs> no, it just means it could be. Maybe you did do something wrong. Maybe you should look at, do I have something I need to work on myself? But it also very probably could mean you just weren't a good fit for that person or this just wasn't the right time for them. Yeah. Well, Let's talk about Tracy. Tracy has a review coming up, and it has been a long while since she was given a raise. She has been given several new responsibilities since her last review and has been told that she exceeded expectations with them all. Unfortunately, she also has to bring up that one of the doctors at the practice has been asking her to handle things that she does not feel comfortable doing. These are things that a doctor should be handling, and Tracy can back that up with the Practice Act. Tracy feels that if she's complaining about being asked to do something while on the clock, it will give management a reason to deny the raise. She feels she has to pick one or the other, meaning she either needs to bring up that she's being asked to do, well, let's, let's state it like it is, illegal things. She's been asked to do illegal things. So she feels like she can either say, stop having me do these illegal things. <laughs> Or that she can ask for a raise, but not both. And she's feeling resentful of being put in that position. So this is a little hindsight here, but Tracy should have brought this up before her evaluation. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. FYI. If you yeah, see illegal, right away. if you are being asked to do illegal, unethical or immoral actions at work, don't wait till your annual eval to bring it up. That's just dumb. Okay. So let's say Tracy didn't think about that or because obviously it's been going on for a while. Yeah. And then and then maybe so we don't know what the thing is. So it could be one of those things that's more like a technical thing, you know, that's like you kind of learn on the back end, like, oops, that's right. technically not allowed. Mm -hmm. But this it this makes it sound like she kind of knew at the time because it says she doesn't feel comfortable with them. 
Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable doing them. Right. So, uh, all right. So what I would suggest to Tracy, number one, she's got some thinking errors in here, right? Well, this is a little tricky. It's not as, it's not a real direct thinking error, but I would say if she said, they'll not give me a raise if I say anything. So that's something I would hear people say, a very concrete, I know this is what's going to happen, which is um, basically prophesying about <laughs> the future, right? I'm positive this will happen. And what's interesting is that she feels like it has to be one or the other. Um, and she's already got bad feelings about it. So she's not giving anybody a chance. She's not brought this to anybody's attention, but she already feels mad um, because she's decided I know the outcome. So she is predicting the future and now is mad about it. Okay, so that's a fun. I don't ever do that. <laughs> no, no, nobody ever does that. They don't say, I know this is going to happen and I'm pissed. Okay. So um, I would help her look at um, just sort of the, uh, I don't know, the the ethics of doing something that you know is outside your scope of practice. So, you know, if I had a, a therapist that I was talking to that said they were working at a mental health center and they were being asked to do something that they weren't, whether from a legal perspective or ethical perspective uh, or moral perspective, were being encouraged to or told they had to do stuff that they knew um, violated one of those three things, um, I would, you know, encourage the person to say, you know, regardless, you have an obligation to bring this up. Um, Like most things, how you bring stuff up makes a big difference, you know. So if you go in and you're confident about it and you say, I want to let you know these things are going on. Um, And what I would add is maybe that there you offer, if there's possibility, you offer some solutions. Is this something that I'm being asked to do that really is just a matter of training? Could I go to training and learn how to do this? Or am I being, so there's a whole lot of factors here that you'd have to consider. But if I'm being asked to do something that's against the law, that's short of going and getting a whole nother degree, um, or, you know, hours and hours and hours of training I don't have that they don't want to pay for, then we have a different problem on our hands. Um, but if it is something that like I could say, you know, Dr. So-and-so wants me to do this particular, is asking me to do this particular procedure, I wouldn't mind doing it if I had some training in it. Um, would you guys be willing to let me go to training? And then once I've received the, the certificate, then I do it at that point. Um, so it's kind of saying I'm not, I don't want to not solve this problem um, if I can, if there's an opportunity to solve it. But it's also helping her realize that, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want to work somewhere where they're asking you to break the law or do immoral or unethical things and they don't care. So if you don't get your raise, then it's probably a great opportunity to go work somewhere else, because if they're okay Mm -hmm. with that, and I would say if it's ethical uh, and unethical or illegal, then she has an obligation possibly to report it to the, to, I I mean, I know with our, we have a board that we're, you know, we're ethically bound to report those things to. So, you know, if she has to, if she has to get to that point where they're not willing to fix it, then she, you know, I would want, I would hope she would do the, the, the ethical thing and make a report to the, you know, licensing body or the board that oversees practice. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I will say about this is that, well, not every state is like Alabama. In Alabama, the Practice Act is really long, it's complex, and it's one of the most restrictive in the country. Is now I have not read all the Practice Acts in the country, but that is generally the sentiment you know that you hear when you 
when you have people talking about different states' practices, acts. Like, Alabama's is super restrictive. So, um, just as an example, in Alabama, there are, I guarantee you, some people who simply don't know that they're violating the Practice Act on a daily basis. Is it their responsibility to know that information? Yeah, it is. Do they take responsibility and find out about it? No, I don't know why. But long story short, it is technically possible for some like minutiae, you know, or things like that to slide under the the radar. And maybe maybe the boss doesn't know that what they're asking is illegal. You Mm -hmm. know, like maybe they just don't know. So I think going into that meeting armed with a copy of the of the Practice Act and saying, you know, gosh, I, I feel really uncomfortable doing this. Here's why it's actually illegal for me to and bringing that like hard copy of like, here is what the law says, um, because they just might not know. I mean, I've seen without getting into specifics, I'll just say that over the years I have seen employers who have been running businesses for decades doing stuff illegally and when you bring it up they're like what as if they had never known and i'm like how have you not known you have been in business for 40 years Mm. but they they didn't know and when i brought it up they changed it but it was like what was going to happen if you ever got caught on this like what are you doing you know (laughs) so they might they might not know veterinarians are not the greatest business owners (laughs) (laughs) They're really good at what they do medicine-wise, but as far as, like, managing, mm, historically, they're maybe not the greatest. Mm -hmm. So so they got a lot going on. (laughs) They might not know. But if they know and they don't fix it, to me, that's a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That would probably be the the fear that that uh, employee would have, I would think, is that um, if they... If they do bring it up, then there's going to be some resentment or um, reprimand or something like that for even bringing it up to begin with. And um, that also going with, you know, oh, you think you deserve a raise? Well, heck no. So, yeah. Well, then then find a better job. Yeah. It's like I would almost like, you know, if they if if I was to bring something like that up and then have management like try to say, oh, no, you're wrong, or not take it seriously, or not even listen, then I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't want the raise because that would maybe make make me feel obligated to stay. So I'd be like, yeah, never mind on the raise. Let's update the resume instead. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it is important for everybody you know, no matter where you're practicing, whether you're in Alabama, another state, or international, familiarize yourself with the regulations in your area um, because they also change a lot. You know, you got to stay abreast of this. Uh, it's a constantly changing world. And I think making sure that you really thoroughly understand what the law is governing your practice, which is your livelihood, I mean, that's super important. Um, if you, if you're a practice manager and you're listening to this and you haven't read the Practice Act in your state in a while, break it out, read it. it sometimes you find stuff in there that you're shocked by, you know, so uh, it's important. Just recently here in Alabama, I received our newsletter from the state board that's the governing body in Alabama that kind of 
con- you know, kind of controls veterinary practice. And they always send out a newsletter in this past one. They emphasized it's illegal to label non-credentialed employees as technicians. Now, is this done all the time at every single practice in the whole state? Probably. People just say one of the techs, you know, or something like that. But you can't use the word tech or technician to describe anyone other than a licensed veterinary technician in the state of Alabama. If you do or you have that in advertising materials like on your website and things like that, you're in violation of the law. And they sent out basically like a warning letter in this saying like, hey, we're going to start fining people. So you better ship up, shape up, you know, but little things like that, that um, when I read it, I mentioned it to several vets and they didn't know what I was talking about. So I had to actually then forward on the newsletter from the state board where they either hadn't gotten it or maybe got it, got lost in the inbox. They didn't read it, you know, but there's little stuff like that all the time that maybe the board hasn't been really cracking down on it. But now they're saying, like, we're not going to allow this anymore. And so it could be very expensive to not stay on top of some of these issues. And also, if you're a technician who is going to management with an issue like this, you need to document that that conversation occurred. Mm-hmm. And my favorite way to do that is a follow-up email. I would like to just follow up the email about our conversation today. Today, I brought you XYZ information, citing the Practice Act, blah, blah, blah. I have let you know that I will either like not engage in this anymore, that I am open to further training or, or whatever the case may be. Sign it and send it. And then that way, there's no plausible deniability later that the conversation didn't occur. If they get in trouble for that, then in your licensed technician and you were engaged in it, that's your license at stake. So you need to have some sort of a backup that says, hey, I actually brought this issue to their attention. You know, that that could help reduce the amount of trouble that that you get in if they ever do get caught. Yes, very good advice. (laughs) Hit us with the next case. Dr. Matthews treated an employee pet on Friday for a slight illness. The pet unfortunately worsened over the weekend and ended up having to be euthanized at an emergency clinic. Uh, Dr. Matthews has gone over everything she did for that pet, and she uh, reached out and spoke with the emergency veterinarian. There's nothing that either one of them would have done differently, um, but that doesn't mean she isn't completely buried with guilt anyway and somehow feels like it's all her fault. She is somewhat close with the employee and did reach out to her, but hasn't heard anything back. So now she is very much dreading going to work on Monday. She'll be working with that employee that day and doesn't know what to do. Well, so my thoughts about this is that animals worsening and passing away suddenly is just a hazard of veterinary medicine, right? So I would hope that most vets would be well aware that despite our very best efforts, sometimes things aren't going to work out the way we would like them to work out. And we have zero control over that. There are so many factors at play, especially um, when you're dealing with pets that can't tell you how they're feeling or that they feel like they've got a new symptom or something's not quite right, you know? So you're doing the best you can with the information that you've got. And so this is this is where looking at the difference and understanding the difference between healthy guilt and destructive guilt is really important because healthy, you know, guilt is not a bad thing if it's doing something to help me learn. So if I feel guilty because I yelled at someone, that's a very normal feeling. I 
absolutely should feel guilty because yelling at someone is not an appropriate response when you're angry. So the healthy guilt is kind of my conscience saying, you know what? That is not okay. When you get mad, yelling at somebody is not an appropriate response. You need to make amends for that. So it's what prompts me to do what I need to do to fix that situation and nurture that relationship so that we can continue, you know, having a relationship with each other. But destructive guilt is what keeps people super stuck in really negative thought patterns that end up being very self-defeating. And that's where that self-compassion comes in. So people who are self-compassionate tend to be really good at saying, I know that I I did the very best I could. And I empathize that this is going to be really hard for this this friend of mine or this employee, this pet owner. So I uh, empathize and definitely want to try to do what I can to help her cope with this, but that I don't feel guilty because I didn't do anything wrong. Um, So there is nothing to take responsibility for, but that I'm going to have a lot of self-compassion because this just stinks. This is a sad situation. And I am not going to, I'm not going to let feeling sad for the pet turn into feeling bad about myself. Um, so, you know, it's tough that the the employee hasn't reached back, reached back out. You know, I think um, a lot of times the thinking error that's going to come in there is she is avoiding me. So I know someone else's intent. Um, now, could it be that she is not talking to the to the veterinarian because she is upset, not necessarily at the vet, but just upset about the situation? Sure. It could also be her phone is turned off. It could also be she's out of cell range. Like there's always a bunch of reasons, but we tend to go with the worst one. And so in this case, it would be it's because she hates me um, or it's because she thinks I I failed her pet. Um, so being able to reframe that and say, I don't know why she's not calling me back, but I'm going to do my best to make sure at some point we get to have a conversation so I can give her a hug. I can you know, express sympathy. I can, you know, let her cry on my shoulder if she needs to. All the things that you would do as as a good professional. But I'm not going to take ownership of this happening because it's not mine to own. I This is not something I'm responsible for. And that might be another one of those scenarios where, too, it'd be good for, like you were saying earlier, if uh, you have another uh, colleague or friend in the business that's not directly, you know, involved that, can also be another sounding board to give you a little bit of reassurance of, you know, hey, I wouldn't have done anything different. You know, you did above and beyond everything that was expected. And, um, you know, it just sucks that this was the outcome. But, you know, you can't, you're not a divine being. You can't, you know, fix everything. So even there's there's things that are beyond your scope of you know imagination of what could happen sometimes and it's just not something that's your fault yeah i agree i i think that every single veterinarian is going to eventually run into this or a similar sort of situation where you see a patient and it suddenly crashes and you're just like wtf (laughs) you know like that this sucks like that there's that those are my notes Dr. Grider's notes. This sucks, period. That's all I wrote. Um, Because it does. It sucks bad when this happens, but like it's going to happen to you. If you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you're like, that's never happened to me, buckle up, buttercup, because it will. (laughs) You just never know what's going to occur. And same sorts of things like I've seen 
I've seen patients on a Friday with maybe like, eh, we didn't eat as good, but everything looks fine on blood work and x-rays and we're watching. And then over the weekend, they're like, oh, actually, I had a linear foreign body, you know, that uh, I didn't tell anyone about, you know, mm-hmm. and, and now we're in <laughs> surgery. I mean, stuff like that just happens. It's part of the part of the the profession. It doesn't make it any better, though, when it's happening to you. So I think one of the ways that I like to look at things that's helped me a lot is to say, if someone came to me with this story, they were telling me this story about themselves, what would my reaction to them be? And then to try to react to myself with that same level of like, it's going to be okay. Like it's, you know, you're not a terrible person. You're going to get through this. It's going to suck for a while, but like, this is going to be okay. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we miss things. And sometimes the pet isn't real good at telling us what's happening. It's not like they speak English or, you know, (laughs) they they just. They definitely don't read the textbooks a lot of times. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. And they can't communicate with us. So we're fallible people (laughs) taking, um, Clinical history from fallible people who own mm. pets, who are observing clinical signs they are ambiguous and the pet can't talk. And that's how we practice. And when you say it like that, you kind of are like, what the hell? Like, what are we, like wizards or something? You're like, yeah. thank God we get it right sometimes, right? <laughs> I know, right? right? <laughs> that almost sounds like an impossible situation. <laughs> the pets are often different species <laughs> as well. <so>. Yeah. <laughs> like, anyway. <sighs> yeah, that's me. I've been there dreading going to work on Monday, but the reality is you just got to do it. (laughs) Get up, put your shoes on, go into work, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be okay. Climb into your bubble. That's right. (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up there for this episode. But Dana is going to be joining us for a continuation, a part two of this advice column episode uh, (laughs) next week. So be sure to check that out as well. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Dana. You're welcome. (laughs) If you have stories, submissions for the advice column, uh, questions, or medical cases, please send them to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear them. And check us out on social media. We are at introvets on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.